is the current federal tax developments for the week of November the 15th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this week we're going to look at some of the following developments that have taken place in federal taxes. First, we're going to discuss a blog post by the Taxpayer Advocate Service where that department announces that they will no longer take on cases that involve solely slow processing of amended tax return refund or amended tax returns, I should say, delaying refunds to taxpayers. We'll discuss why the agency has decided that they're just not going to take those cases anymore. Essentially, they're giving up. That's probably the best way to look at it. And also when we might see them come back. The second thing we will talk about, the IRS released this week the big patch of inflation-adjusted numbers for 2022. So all the various tax numbers you need now to make your tax projections and other items official. We've all had these numbers that are worked up by the publishers earlier in the year that are the estimated numbers. Uh, Now we get the official numbers. Usually they're very close, but just in case you can double check them and make sure they're fine. And we'll close out this week by talking about a private letter ruling request. This is a private letter ruling that tried to make the mark-to-market election under Section 475F1 with IRS permission to make it late. And I've actually been asked about that on a couple of different occasions in a couple of different contexts by people about, well, is there any way to fix this late? And we'll talk about why that answer is probably not. In fact, almost certainly not. And we'll also discover how this case failed as well, that we were not able to get that late election and talk a little bit about why that's such a problem and why this one, unlike a lot of other elections that the IRS will give you a waiver on, this one is not likely to be one you're going to be able to go to the IRS, even paying the private letter ruling fee and get the IRS to bless your late election. With that, though, let's start out with the first story. Uh, which came up in a post on the National Taxpayer Advocates blog. And it is entitled, IRS delays in processing amended returns are impacting TAS's ability to assist taxpayers. Published on the 11th of November. What's happening in this case is that this blog is set here and the headline kind of, you know, covers up what we're going to get here in the end. But they're announcing that at this point, the IRS is way woefully behind in processing paper returns. They're now pretty much admitting that they may have the envelopes opened. And that's kind of been what you've heard during the year when the commissioner says they're caught up on the mail. Uh, He didn't really mean caught up on processing, caught up on opening. So your return's been opened, but actually getting it processed and through the system As the Taxpayer Advocates Office notes, not necessarily something that's really happening here. And so what the National Taxpayer Advocate Office has done is one of their positions is as an agency, they generally do not take on cases where they cannot meaningfully expedite or improve case resolutions for taxpayers. What's happened at this point is there are so many tax returns that are so far behind in processing that effectively TAS says they're just being overwhelmed with requests from taxpayers 
who filed amended returns, some of which were filed back in 2020, and even relatively early in 2020, that still have not seen action. And the problem, as the Taxpayer Advocate Service notes, is at this point, they really need now like a separate group to expedite their stuff. They really don't have the resources, the capabilities to do this. And they're not, you know, the basic problem is just that the IRS is so far bogged down. It is a more systematic issue that just the problem is you just got to get people to process this stuff and get it through. And they're so far behind in that, that it's just not helpful to go ahead and try to get some move to the front. That probably is slowing down the process even more overall. So while recognizing that a lot of people have been waiting a long time to you know, get their amended returns processed, they're announcing specifically if the only issue involved here is that an amended return is not being processed expeditiously, no matter what the consequences may be, the advocate's office says we really can't help with it. Now, if you meet other criteria, right, you have some other factors, which are the ones you're going to find, and they, they do cross-reference you over to the Internal Revenue Manual, Section 13.1.7, available online. The IRS has this stuff online uh, that goes into what cases the National Taxpayers Advocate is supposed to help with resolutions toward. What are their criteria? They do say that if your case meets other criteria, and there's a delayed refund in there, yes, they will continue to pick those up. But if the only issue in front of the taxpayer is we have a delayed refund, they're not really going to pick it up. Part of the problem, obviously, is, uh, you know, do we actually have, you know, why do we face some of the problems we do? One of the big reasons we do, if you're not aware of it, is paper returns have slowed to a crawl in terms of processing. And I know that probably everybody has one or two clients, unless you fired them, and some CPAs and some other preparers have fired those clients, saying they're just not, they're too much hassle to deal with. But there are always a few people who still cling to the idea that they should be filing their tax returns on paper and insist on paper filing. As we're discovering at this point, paper filing is going to go into the very, very slow process category at this point. It's not like electronic filing is perfect on this. We still get weird things happening. But it's not, you know, it's much better than the paper version where we're trying to find out what happened on a return and it's going to take quite a while to do so. But in any event, they did tell us that they are considering and we'll reconsider coming back in later. Uh, but right now they're saying nothing really much can be done. In essence, it is so bad that they can't even get in there and find the return is what seems to be happening. Traditionally, they've stepped in and they've been able to take over a return or step into a situation where it's been processed, handled. You can actually find it and be able to move forward. That simply is not happening here. Obviously, going forward. One thing you could consider if you really do have an emergency, I don't know how well this works, but some Congress people, you know, have better or, you know, more staff that is more capable or handles easily tax issues. Uh, those might be a place to turn, though I suspect those offices are being overrun as well. 
Uh, but it is a place, if desperate, to go because sometimes you're going to find that a congressperson's call gets more attention than other locations. So if you have a congressman or senator who has good constituent service, uh, you might step in there and see if that could help resolve your issue. But right now, the bottom line is the IRS is still way behind and things are just not working well. That also means that we, as tax professionals, I think, have to take that into account. I've been discussing with people things like, you know, the power of attorney, the automatic e-filed version we talked about earlier that is signed electronically by the preparer, signed electronically by the individual. It only affects, we can only do individual returns for the most part under this power of attorney automatic, and then it goes straight into CAF. Well, that's the sort of thing we know speeds up the case. And I realize that people will say, well, but my clients are too confused and they don't understand this electronic, you know, signature bit. They don't understand how to set up the account. My take on that has been, to be totally honest, I will actually bring the client in and we'll just walk through with them how to get this done online. And if they're concerned because, oh, this is horrible, we're doing these things online and therefore, you know, my whole life's going to be blown up because all of my stuff's going to be stolen. Uh, you know, we just have the straight up discussion. Uh, first thing is generally, you know, we see a lot more risk with this stuff sitting around, you know, kind of waiting and who, sitting who knows where stored. And the catch is who might have access to that. You know, theoretically, it's under full control. But again, the theory and the procedures meant to take care of that were not designed to have this many things hanging around. Secondly, I point out, you know, fine, you want to go down that path, but then realize that when things aren't happening and you're continuing to get nasty letters uh, and you can't get anybody to take care of anything because we can't get it through the process, um, that's the trade-off here. You know, I can't get my POA into the system. It hasn't been input yet because it's still sitting waiting. And remember, that program is not the program where you get paper POAs signed and then you can scan them and upload them to the IRS. The IRS was very clear from the start on that program that that program, which is not the tax pros program, that program is just a quicker way to get something, a more convenient way to get something up. But those go in the same stack as the returns or the POAs that came in via the mail. They're the same stack as those that get faxed in. They're just put in the stack, they're processed in order. So it's going to be you know, a number of, if you're really lucky, weeks, not so lucky months uh, before those get into the CAF system. So be aware of what you need to do. I think we're going to be dealing with the IRS being behind uh, at least for another year, if not more, where it's just going to be they're not going to be very responsive and they're going to be issuing these notices that make no sense. So try to get clients to use methods that are less likely to cause the problems rather than, you know, just use the methods they are, quote, comfortable with because that comfort could create a disaster uh, for them at this point or at least a lot, of, a lot of stress and confusion. So be aware of that. It is that time of year for the IRS to be publishing the inflation-adjusted numbers. We had already talked about uh, earlier last week about how they had issued notice 2021-61, which gave us all of the retirement plan numbers. Well, this week the IRS issued in Revenue Procedure 2021-45 on the 10th of November the 
large document that has a lot of the inflation-adjusted numbers for next year. And this document goes on for many pages. It has the updated tax rate, you know, the tax rate schedules for 2022. So the official ones are there. It has pretty much every number. It has like penalty amounts that are inflation adjusted. Everything kind of sits in there. Now, I've highlighted, if you look in the article, I listed some of the more significant items that are in there. And I'm not going to cover even that whole list here today. We're going to be looking more at, you know, some of the things that, that are there that are really the big numbers people probably look for. So because of that, we'll, we'll take a look at some of this and go. Uh, one of the key things that we see, uh, one thing which is not on, going to be on my slides if you're watching it on the broadcast, is the, you know, they, they did raise the teacher's deduction to a whopping 300 this year. So, okay, celebrate. The above-the-line deduction for classroom expenses incurred by an elementary or secondary teacher uh, is now up to 300 A little bit of break. Again, nothing huge, but it did go up, so we'll go there. Uh, one other thing that was noticed this, this week with the draft 1040, I should add, not really a change, but we all know that we're getting a $300 and $600 uh, non-itemizer additional charitable contribution. But interestingly, this year, they do not put that as an adjustment to income. That would reduce AGI. Rather, they're treating that as something other than that, something much like 109 Cap A. So it's effectively standard deduction, then this 109 Cap A. That gets you from AGI to taxable income. It is not going into AGI, so it no longer drops AGI. Under that theory, please note that therefore states that don't follow, that basically that follow federal AGI, uh, basically under the definition we have now, that's probably going to result in the fact that that adjustment does not show up on the state return now either. Uh, it was, I think there is a subtle difference in how the provisions worded from the CARES Act to what came in with the uh, Consolidated Appropriations Act that extended it into this year. And that moved it outside of AGI computation. So just be aware of that. One thing which we've got, well, we're talking about that. If you're not itemized, you're going to be using a standard deduction. We do have the numbers for that for this year. If you're married filing joint, we're going to go to 25900 right, for our amount. Uh, if we're going to head of household, 194 Single, 12950 And married filing separate, 12950 Those will be our numbers. Also, if you're looking at that additional amount because somebody is over 65 or blind, that will be 1400 unless the individual is unmarried and not a surviving spouse, in which case then instead of 1400 that individual will get 1750 if they are 65 and over or they are blind. Um, you know, when I read that, the IRS says if, if you're older, older taxpayers, and of course, that, that sounded really good back when I was like 30 or 25 or 30, that we could call that older. As you get closer to that number, you began to think, nah, 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 that, that, that's not really old, right? Yeah. So we're just going to say 65 and over, right? We, we get that particular issue. Yes, I understand it's called older. But nevertheless, that's what we're doing. Um, we do have a couple of other issues here. Uh, if you're looking for minimum income, okay, we've got here. If you're looking for the issue here about the small business accounting methods, 
That's the one that says if you have average revenue, average receipts of less than, it was $25 million adjusted for inflation, put in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And if you remember that provision, if you did it, it's actually found in the rules for who can qualify to use the cash basis of accounting. But that particular test is then cross-referenced in a number of other provisions brought in by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. That includes to be a small business for purposes of the 163J interest limitation rules to get out of those. It's in there for the ability to use the special inventory methods, the 471C inventory methods. It's in there for the capability of being able to get out of using 263 Cap 8. It's also in there uh, for the definition of a small contractor, if you do much with contracting jobs. So the number will be $27 million for 22. That means you'll look at your average revenues being in excess of $27 million for the three years preceding. And if they are, they're below that level, then you'll be able to use those methods. If you're above, or generally, there are some exceptions for tax shelters, but generally you'll still be able to use those methods. And if you go above that limit, then you're not necessarily, in essence, you would have to either not be allowed to get that benefit at all, which is generally true. You're going to use 263 Cap A, right? You're going to have to use 471A style inventories, not 471C. You're going to have to, you know, you also will not be a small contractor, meaning unless you're a home builder, you're going to have to use percentage of completion method of accounting. And you probably will need to be on the accrual basis. There are some companies that are automatically allowed to be on the cash basis. And there's also others that you could argue it clearly reflects income, even at $27, 28, $28, million of revenue. But again, that's what we see that there. So it moved up to that. Some other business numbers that changed. Normally in the past, we would have really gone over what happened to the 179 limitation. Now with bonus now with bonus depreciation, the main reason you worry about 179 is if your state allows 179 but does not allow bonus. Because in most cases, there are only a few things that cannot qualify for bonus depreciation but can get 179. Obviously, you have one of those, then maybe it's important. And the fact that the limit is now up to a million eighty thousand dollars might be very important to you. But otherwise, yeah, and it phases out beginning at 2.7 million. Obviously, bonus depreciation does not phase out. There is no election, right? So Generally, we use that unless we have normally a state law reason why we want to use 179 instead. Also, if you take a look in there, you're going to get the 199 cap A business phase out numbers. Remember, where we worry about whether we have to worry about if the business is a specified service trade or business, or, or if we have, to, we have to limit our 199 cap A deduction based upon wages or wages plus uh, unadjusted basis of assets. Those numbers are in there too with the slight inflation adjustment, so they're coming up some. So you can still so you can get a higher amount of taxable income and not have to worry about those issues. We also have the excess business loss number was modified. Remember, that's the rule we'll put in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act under section 461L. Actually, you computed on form 461. It's kind of like they decided, yeah, that that you know, we can put those two together. Um, that's the one where if you have excess losses from trade or business on individual return, 
It also is in excess of the inflation-adjusted limit, which we now know will be two hundred seventy thousand dollars, unless you're married filing joint, when it'll be five hundred forty thousand dollars. That excess is going to be disallowed, and under current law, treated as an NOL next year, under the four uh, BA, the proposed bill. Uh, that may be converting to something a little bit different that will still be subject to this restriction. So keep your eye on that, but that doesn't really impact, you know, what might be disallowed in next year. It would still be the same disallowance number. It's just what would happen to it going forward. We also have the new foreign income exclusion. Foreign earned income exclusion, you do the form 2555, at, you know, because you have somebody who is working outside the U.S., and therefore, they can qualify for the foreign earned income exclusion. And I should say they're working, I really should say, in a foreign country. I remember all those Antarctica people that got assigned to the station in Antarctica and discovered that that didn't qualify for this because Antarctica is a kind of an international open zone, not really owned by any country. Therefore, you can't qualify for this exclusion if you're assigned to Antarctica. So if you're there, tough luck. But otherwise, $112,000 for the foreign earned income exclusion. Obviously, you can take that or any alternative. You could leave it on and take your foreign tax credit. If your income's well above the cap of $112,000, you're probably going to take the foreign tax credit. Instead, that'll get you more benefit. But you might have an issue there. So the 112 number, it's available and there. The unified credit. For estate taxes, $12,060,000. There was talk of having that go down next year in the when we were talking about the 4BA, right? The, buy, the Build Back Better Act. However, in the most recent versions in the House, we've not seen that provision included. Uh, and definitely there was opposition in the Senate. So it appears fairly likely that the $12,060,000 will be next year's exclusion. Don't forget, we are heading to 2026 when that is scheduled to go down. There, if Congress just does nothing, we're going to get that down by about half. And you have to say about half because of the fact, well, it's inflation adjusted and we're continuing to that year. But it's also inflation adjusted differently uh, because the old law did not use the change CPI. So the actual number that it'll be, we're not sure, but it's pretty sure now at this point that number in 26 is going to be over $6 million uh, because we've now gotten over the $12 million and the chain CPI actually slows down the inflation adjustment. So in theory, it's probably going to be a bit more than half of that when we get done. We also have the annual gift of a present interest. That number goes to $16,000. We have that in play. Uh, if your business has a qualified small employer health reimbursement arrangement, QSC HRA, the limit on reimbursement for next year, $5,450, unless it's family coverage when we get $11,050 is the max reimbursement. Now, as I've said before, I really think if you have one of those plans, you should take a look at the options that were added in the regulations for, you know, the other options, right? The individual coverage HRA. Take a look. That probably fits the bill and will actually give you the same effect as the uh, QSE HRA, except 
it will not have that cap for the amounts you can put in there. The QSEHRA is a statutory item that was added uh, back in 2016, late 2016. It's, it's there. You can use it. But the IRS regulations that opened up the individual coverage HRA, really in 95% of the cases, are going to end up being a way better option than this. There are some cases, I yeah, kind of, yeah. There should be some cases where this may work and the, and the individual coverage HRA wouldn't work, but they're going to be rather rare. So I, I would keep my eye. The most traditional reason why you're using individual coverage and you were doing the QSE HRA is going to be a similar reason why you do the individual coverage HRA. So just, just keep that one in mind. Next up, we have a private letter ruling. We haven't looked at one of these in a while. 2021 45 015 issued on November the 12th. This is a private letter ruling related to the 475 F1 mark to market election that can be made by someone who is in the trade or business of being a trader. Now, let's talk about this. Really, if you're buying and selling securities, you actually can fall into any one of three categories if you're holding securities. Most people will fall into the category of an investor. Investors hold on to securities, generally not looking for, you know, minute by minute price changes, but holding for a longer period than that. You know, they don't buy something thinking they're going to sell it later in the day. Okay, they generally have capital gains, capital losses when they sell their security. If they hold them for a year, they will get long-term treatment. If it's held less than a year, it'd be short-term treatment. But that's category one. And that, that's where probably 98%, 99% of all of our clients are going to fall into the investor category. The other two options are dealers and securities. That's rare and rare. And we don't that's not something that most of us day-to-day -day are going to deal with. Somebody who holds securities in inventory for sale. That's not really us. We're, we're not dealers, and therefore our gain or loss, the gain or loss rules there aren't really going to be key. The one key is, though, they are required to use mark-to-market. Then there's this third category called traders. Now, traders are not, they don't really hold it in inventory, but they are looking at dealing with the minutiae, very quick changes in prices of stock. They, they they believe they are capable. Some are, a lot aren't. You know, you, you've got this. There are, either you are very, very, very good at doing this, and that's a small percentage of the population, or this is a quick way to get a small fortune by starting with a large fortune. In essence, you lose your shirt quickly. These taxpayers can make an optional mark-to-market election. That's under 475F1. And the 475F1 election has them treated much like the traders, which means they're going to be on a mark-to-market system. Now, in this case, we are dealing with a taxpayer who began got lots of funds in from selling a business, and he began trading stocks late in one year, doing the big trading. And traders will have hundreds or thousands of trades on even a single day. And they will have huge, huge boxes. 
normally of detailed trades, and you hope they've got software tracking this stuff, because otherwise your return's a nightmare, especially if they have if they need to track wash sales too. Whether or not this is in play, you know, they need to track those things. So hopefully they were tracking that too if they haven't got the election. But essentially, with these rules that we have, you know, they, they report that way. Now, if they don't make this election, their gains and losses retain capital status. If they make this election, two things happen. First, they have to agree at the end of the year to take whatever they're holding at the end of the year and treat it as if it was all sold for the fair market value at the end of that day. They mark to market everything they're holding. And the number two is their gains and losses are treated as all ordinary gains and losses, not capital. Now, generally, the mark-to-market part of this for a trader doesn't really normally directly impact a normal trader. Normal traders who are playing on minute-by-minute changes in price in a stock. The last thing they want to do is be holding stock at a time when it will be difficult or impossible to get rid of the stock. And since they do have to sleep sometimes, if they're still holding that stock at the end of the day, they're going to be sitting there for eight hours, whatever, totally exposed to the market's changes and not able to react. So, you know, and then there's also just the catch that your markets in question may not be open. So there may be no way to make a change, even if something happens that you now know is going to have an impact on these shares, requiring us to, you know, meaning that we're going to lose our shirt on this stuff. But now we got to wait till the morning when everybody else knows about this. And at that point, the market will have totally taken this news into account. So generally, to true traders come back to cash at the end of the day. Right, they sit on cash, and they they will then buy up lots of stuff first thing the next morning, and they will do their trading and actively manage things during that time period. But during any period they're not actively managing, a true trader is going to probably want to be sitting there in in cash, not with securities outstanding, because you know they're playing those minute by minute moves, and when we get to the end of the day. You know, we can't do that anymore, so we have, we try to back out of those transactions. So being required to be forced to sell the securities at the end of the day, not really a big deal treated as sold because you may be holding things the other day. And the ordinary loss issue, ordinary gain or loss. Well, you might think, yeah, but what if we have a gain? We'd want to have capital gains. And you got to remember, as a trader, those capital gains are almost certainly going to be short-term capital gains, Right? We're going by minute-by-minute minute changes. Well, minute-by-minute minute changes, we're never going to hold a stock over a year. So the only real disadvantage to that when we treat them as ordinary rather than capital would come about if we had a large capital loss outside of a trading activity. Then if we had all these trading gains that were short-term capital gains, they could still absorb a large long-term capital loss. Obviously, if they're ordinary, they won't do that. Now, making this election does not make the income 
even though it's going to be a Schedule C style report for all the expenses, the income is not subject to self-employment in self-employment tax. It's excluded. It's part of the reason why the net investment income tax counts income from a trader business of this type as investment income because it does not get subjected to FICA or you know self-employment tax because it's considered to be not self-employment income. You know, it's there's a specific exclusion under 1401 for income gains or losses from the sale of these types of assets is not considered to be uh, self-employment income. And that still applies even with the selection in place. But the problem is that, and the advantage of it, let's be honest, the advantage of having those losses not be capital, they don't run into the $3,000 a year cap on maximum losses you can claim. Because they don't hit the $3,000 a year cap, and you also avoid the wash sale rules, which are, yeah, they'll be nasty here because day traders love to keep staying in the same stocks, which could cause a lot of losses at the end of the year to be unavailable because they're going to re, they're going to recover. They're going to buy back that same stock well within the 60-day time window before and after. So, and normally after because they've probably gotten rid of everything before. But it's still going to come down and create problems with them of any losses incurred toward the end of the year get pushed into the next year. With mark to market, that doesn't happen because we just mark everything to market. If there's inherent loss there, it's picked up. But normally the problem is that capital loss issue. And that's what it was here. This trader did it. But the problem is that this election, if you take a look, this election is governed by Revenue Procedure 9917. And if you want to make this election as a trader, this election is due on by the due date, you know, essentially, by the due date of your 1040, the income tax return for the preceding year without extensions. So generally, you got to send this election in with the return or with the extension in order to make the election on a timely basis. So we need to make this election for an individual by mid-April. Obviously, there's still a lot of year, eight and a half months of year left to go. And we're a day trader. We don't really know how this year is going to turn out. So this election is under the standard rules required to be made very, very early. And they're very clear that that's to prevent people from gaining an advantage by knowing what happened when they finally make the decision. It is a change of accounting method when you do it. So in addition to sending that election in on the return for the year in question, you're going to file 3115. And if there is a beginning of the year difference, you weren't out to zero, might not be because of mark, because of wash sales, then you'll pick up your 41A adjustment. If it's a negative adjustment, which will be if you have lost sales that were being held up there, then you're going to pick that up as a one-year negative adjustment. Uh, if it's a positive adjustment, for whatever reason, we you know have income we didn't recognize because maybe we're sitting on the actual stuff that day that was appreciated. We didn't sell it. We waited until you know, after New Year's Day, which really was high risk, you know, but to hold and sell it, then in that case, if it's more than $50,000, essentially we we can carry it. We can just, do we have to do it over four years? If it's below 50,000, we can elect to treat it all in one year for the adjustment. But the problem here, of course, was this guy didn't know that. 
Uh, he had income the first year, big losses the second year. Well, he discovered that he could not take all those losses. And the losses were so big that they created net operating losses. And this is for a year where he could carry that loss back. Remember, now coming up in 21, we can't do that. But obviously, in years before 2018, we could do it. And after the CARES Act, we could do it for 18, 19, and 20. So he wanted to carry back, and he did very well the first year. So it would have gone back, and it would have essentially gone through and gotten him back a lot of the taxes he had paid in the immediately prior year because this NOL was going to be big, and it was going to go back and you know, take that stuff and eliminate income for years ahead of it and then suddenly be able to release this big, this big chunk of income right there at the end. Well, unfortunately, he thought he could claim the losses, but he discovered he was wrong. He also was not aware of this election. So after the end of the second year, when he became aware that, oh, there's a problem here, you can't do this, he went and sought the counsel of an attorney. And a tax attorney worked with him to attempt to ask the IRS to please, please, please give us relief and let us make this late election. Now, this is a date. The law allowed the IRS to set the date for when the election must be made. And because the IRS is given the discretion to set this date, rather than the state date being set by statute, the IRS, with the regulation 301-9100-1, and then in this case, you go to 301-9100-3 because it's not an automatic relief rule under 2. No automatic rule gets it. So under the general rule of 301-9100-3, the IRS has the authority to waive the election and let you make a late, late election. And for most things, you'll see tons of these requests go through private letter ruling listings every week. And for most topics, as long as the taxpayer is coming forth voluntarily, as long as, you know, they're not playing games here, and let's say they really were like this person, ignorant, they suddenly got to an advisor who tells them, wait, you should have done this. You know, you really should have elected this, and then that we would have had this much better result. And they often get the relief in those cases. They're allowed to do it. You'll see a lot of relief provisions out there. You know, clients who didn't realize that their foreign LLC was going to, by default, be a corporation, not a partnership, or disregarded uh, because they didn't realize things were different that way, or their advisor didn't. You see those all the time being let through, and they're allowed to make late elections. But this is a different beast. The problem with this case is, remember, a law-abiding taxpayer who is following the rules, will need to make their call about this in April, eight and a half months before they actually know how things are going for the year. And that means they will have to make this election, and it may turn out at the end of the year, not only did we not have a loss, so this really does no good, but we also maybe had a really big capital loss for, an active, for a sale outside of the trading activity entirely. And our big gains on trading can absorb that capital loss. So we know now that the best thing to do is not to make the election and let those be capital transactions. If you allow taxpayers to make late elections, 
by asking, like they do for a lot of other things, you are giving a huge advantage to taxpayers who just don't follow the rules and maybe you know remain intentionally uninformed and don't get advice. And let's be blunt, you're always going to find that some taxpayer is going to lie about this, right? And they may be aware they should have made the election, but the old theory about, well, how will the IRS know that I didn't, you know, that I didn't go out to make the election? How will they know what I'm doing? And they'll want to come in and say, you know, please, 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 IRS, let us make a late election. So the IRS is wildly unlikely to give relief in the case. Now, what they look at is twofold, and this is under 301-900-3, and these two factors are always considered. But as I say, for most elections that don't have these type of restrictions and where hindsight is not necessarily going to really, you know, some elections are just obvious. Anybody who knew about the election would have made the election right at that time. The only reason it wasn't made is because you know, they didn't get good advice. But this is not one of those cases. The advisor would not have, you know, first thing is you couldn't make it late. And on April 15th, the advisor wouldn't really know whether making the election is really a majorly good thing or not. You may say it's probably a good thing because probably it won't help you very much if these gain, if you get a net gain and it's non-capital but it could hurt you drastically if you lose money on the trades for the year and it becomes a capital loss that that's a disaster but it's not a total you know slam dunk there're definitely situations where if you waited till the end of the year you would say no I'm going to leave it alone this year to absorb that big capital loss so in this case the IRS interprets these differently the first question is did the taxpayer act in good faith right so in essence, you know, did, did the taxpayer act in good faith and make a reasonable attempt to comply with the law? You know, because th- that's going to be the issue, right? You did not act reasonably and in good faith. To show you act reasonably and in good faith, it's really difficult to make this work. I can only recall one PLR I have ever seen where the IRS granted late relief And that was for a change of entity type where the taxpayer just didn't realize they had always been under mark to market. But then they went through a reorganization of sorts and came out as a new entity type. And the taxpayer didn't realize that that election did not carry over to the new entity. And the IRS accepted in that case that, yeah, they were doing it. They had prepared the return as if it was marked to market. They had been working all your planning as if it was marked to market. You know, everything showed that the taxpayer and, you know, they got advice. The advisor just fouled up. So they clearly would have made the election had they been aware that it was there because they were thinking they had to operate under that rule. They weren't gaining an advantage. But that was the only one, and that goes way back. Uh, that I can recall ever seeing where this has worked late. Normally, the problem is you've got to show that you did not use hindsight. And that's going to be difficult because would you be approaching the IRS asking for late election relief if, in fact, the election is not advantageous this year? Probably not. You would have suddenly said, oh, we didn't make the election Oh, okay, well, we saved $100,000. Okay, well, you know, 
why don't we just make it uh, the next, you know, by next April 15th, and we'll be good going forward. We're not going to leave it there. So the IRS said they didn't see, except his assertion, any evidence of why he should have reasonably believed that the sales of stock would have been ordinary losses to him. So they didn't see that background in his case. Also, you've got to show that you do not prejudice the interests of the government. And again, the IRS's general position is because this allows taxpayers to use hindsight, allowing these elections generally would prejudice the interests of the government. For that reason, the IRS turns down and denies this, this request. The taxpayer does not get his relief that he's looking for. Now, as I say, I've been approached on this on a couple of occasions. Actually, I tend to get called about this about once a year. Because apparently, whenever you write an article on this thing, if anybody gets trapped in it, you suddenly get, get an email from them. You know, if you have an article on it on the Internet, people find this in a Google search. And suddenly, you know, they're calling and trying to tell you, well, you know, can't, can't we do something and do this? Because, you know, I didn't know about this or you, you maybe their advisor's calling me. And I never knew this had to happen. I mean, I knew there was an election. But, you know, I thought you just put it with the return. And it's like, okay, that's bad. But, you know, really, you're not going to get this for the most part. It's very, very difficult to get it because you have to have a situation where the IRS, the IRS objectively sees evidence that you would have made this election, this late election request, even if it turned out that, it was disadvantageous. You know, you'd have been better off without it. And that's very difficult to get an objective fact pattern that suggests that this person would have filed this election, even had it cost him money, he still would have been going for this late election request. That's just very difficult to make work. So bottom line, if you are wanting to call me and ask if this is going to work, my answer is almost certainly not. Can't say for sure because, as I said, I've seen one that worked. Uh, and, you know, but it was a very unusual case. Now, as the IRS says here, it's got to be a very unusual and unique fact pattern. Uh, maybe you've got it, but all too often the fact pattern I'm hearing is very similar to this one. The taxpayer did this, uh, you know, they whatever didn't seek advice or the advisor was unaware of this rule. And, you know, they then got to the end of the year. They have this huge capital loss. And suddenly the advisor learns about this election. And now they're trying to solve this problem of the fact that this guy is going to pay tax on all of his regular income. But he's going to have this huge loss. So he doesn't really have any cash left at the end of the year because he blew it all on these on these trades. And they're going to, trying to fix that then. Bottom line, it just doesn't work. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for this week of November the 15th. This is the last extended date, right, for the calendar year anything. This is the not-for-profits date. I don't think we have anything big coming in. Oh, yeah, Texas franchise tax, too, in that days, if you want an extension. So the, the extension, not-for-profits, the extensions, Texas franchise tax returns are out today. And then after this, I don't think there's any other tax returns for calendar 2020 that would be timely filed from this point forward. Fiscal years, yeah, no question. But calendar year 2020, I think we are finally, as of Monday, done with that. So, hey, we're done. And it's only a month and 15 days till we end 2021, and we get to start doing 2021 calendar year returns. Yep, finish one, get ready for the next. 
So any event, I will be checking, seeing what comes up this week in developments. I do have a number of courses this week. Uh, got a few in Arizona, two in Arizona, uh, one one well, remote, a couple of remotes th this week that I'm doing, and then uh, one firm this week that I'm going to be doing some work with. So I'll be doing a lot of that. So I'll see how well I can get updates written and how quickly they're done. But we'll, we'll look for that and go forward. Remember, if you are a member of the Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, uh, Illinois, Washington Societies and have access to the Connect sites, uh, you can post questions and issues there. If I see something of interest, I will try to respond. Uh, some are more active than other sites, I'll say for sure. Uh, you know, we'll see them. Arizona and New Jersey seem to be the two most active of the Connect groups I'm involved in, but others are there. I also look in on Idaho's uh, posting board if something goes up there. Uh, and by the way, if you're in any of those states, might be useful to get in and start actually, you know, building some and doing some discussions in there. Those can be in where they work and where people are deeply involved. They are extremely useful, and especially when you have unique issues with state tax matters that aren't likely to be addressed by any national situation. So just, just a little warrant, just a little issue. If you have access to that in your organization, uh, make sure you take advantage of it and, may, and try to get people involved and start discussions there because it really, really builds to something. I think those uh, who are members of the Arizona, New Jersey societies that are involved and read those posts on their Connect sites, uh, they'll, they'll tell you that, yeah, that is a huge resource that keeps you up on things and lets you bounce questions that aren't easily you know, handled elsewhere, just gives you kind of a group to bounce things off of. So very, very useful. I, as I said, we'll be back next week. So we'll be back looking at the updates. Uh, probably won't have a brand new tax law yet. I'm sure you all just can't wait if we're going to get that. My bet is we get it late December if we get one, or maybe even January because, hey, there's nothing like a good retroactive tax law. So if it does, we'll, we'll talk about that when it comes up. Until then, we'll talk about developments. Uh, and Otherwise, I look forward to seeing you next week when we'll talk more about current federal tax developments.